Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. So for the last few months, we've been learning the story that we have been called to participate in. And in the last few weeks, if you've been with us, you know, we've been exploring in particular what are called the wisdom books of the Bible. First with Proverbs, last week with Job, and this morning, Ecclesiastes, which is a five-syllable mouthful. Can I get an amen? Ecclesiastes is a five-syllable see is a five-syllable mouthful. But I don't want you to allow, allow this title to scare you away from this book. First of all, why is it called Ecclesiastes? It's called Ecclesiastes because it contains the words of a man named Kaholat. There you go. Does that help? <laughs> this is from a Hebrew verb to call. Like our call to worship or a call to gather around at our home group. Folks arrive and inevitably we all sort of kind of meander towards the kitchen. And then I or somebody else has to call everybody to the living room so that we can get things started. So in Hebrew, I call people to form a kahel. Okay, a gathering. I call people to form a Kahel. And so at that moment, I am a Kaholath. Make sense? So let's, let's just end our sermon there. Kaholath means convener, a gatherer. And translate that into Greek and then into Latin, and you get, voila, Ecclesiastes. Kaholath actually is not. A name, really, is probably a title. And we're not actually given a name of whoever is speaking in Ecclesiastes. But Kaholath wants us to think of King Solomon. And that's because Solomon alone had the means to experience much of what life has to offer. And late in his life, Solomon, in a way here, calls us, Kohel, as a Koheleth, into his living room to tell us what he has discovered about the life that he has lived. But it's not just Solomon's words that we're about to encounter. Ultimately, it's God's word through Solomon. Solomon himself says that these are the words of one shepherd, and that one shepherd is the Lord. And what God has to say through Kohola, what God has to say through Solomon may surprise you this morning. And I want to pray before that happens. Lord, with the words of my mouth, with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are our rock and you are our redeemer and Holy Spirit. Open the eyes of our hearts so that we would actually see Jesus through your word. That we would encounter Jesus in a way that would transform us. In a way that would keep us walking with you. In a way that would convince our hearts that he is more beautiful than everything else this world can offer. And we pray for that miracle in his name. Amen. 
A few years ago, I had the opportunity to backpack the back country of the High Sierras in California, and I went with an experienced friend, but my, myself, I had no experience at all. I didn't know what to expect. Truthfully, I thought it would be easy because, you know, how hard can it be to walk on a path? That was my thinking. That was really it. Um, he said, train by walking with a backpack. And I'm thinking, okay, that's all this is going to be. We're going to be walking with a backpack. That sounds easy. Well, I'll never forget the flight to this locale. Because my friend leaned over on the plane and said, Joe, what we are about to do is hard. Very hard. For three or so days, he went on, we will be hanging out at the very bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You don't know what that is? There you go. You see it? It's a pyramid of human needs. At the tippy top, right at the top, are luxuries, like self-actualization and self-esteem. But at the very bottom are the basics, shelter and food, survival, actually. Well, these words were hard to hear, actually. It kind of scared me, but it was very kind to hear them. I appreciated the warning. His words were difficult, but they were loving. Why were they loving? Because he accurately described facts. Facts on the ground. And as it's been said, facts, no matter how difficult they are, are friendly. Think about how unloving it would be, I think, to hide this reality from me. I could be killed out there. But we do it all the time, right? We disconnect description and reality. I think this is true about just about every self-help book that you can find on the shelf. Having marriage trouble? Easy. Just do this. Interested in Jesus? Easy. It's just like this. Do you hate your job? Okay, do this. A friend in my home group, she called this this week toxic positivity. It's well-meaning positivity, but it's toxic. Why? Because in the end, it makes you sick. We never accept toxic positivity at the doctor's office, do we? That's unacceptable. Because our lives depend on an accurate diagnosis. Amen? So why do we accept it everywhere else? That's the question I'm asking. And why do we accept it in church of all places? Elizabeth Bainhop said a few months ago to our church, life in a fallen world is hard. It was a simple statement, but it was a statement that brought my soul relief. Life in a fallen heart, fallen world is hard. Statements like that are necessary. Facts on the ground, statements. And it actually keeps all of us safe in this room. It keeps us from falling off the cliff. Because life is hard in this fallen world. It's harder than we like to admit. But think for a moment, why is it then that we push against that? Why is it that we are afraid to own that fact that life is hard, even life with God? Why is it that we are afraid to own that reality? Well, I think part of the reason, as I think about it myself, is that if we admit it, we are afraid that we might slip into despair. 
which is also toxic. And so given the choice between toxic despair and toxic positivity, pick your poison, we choose toxic positivity. It seems the better of the two terrible options, amen? But it doesn't last long, does it? Sooner or later we give up and then despair creeps in, even though we've tried hard to push it at bay. I've actually wondered, maybe you've wondered this too, why our best comedians often struggle with despair? And I wonder if it's because they have eyes to see how hard life is. And by vocation, you know, it's their job to prohibit false optimism. They have to name the absurdities of life to get laughter. It's paradoxes, it's injustices, and they see better than most, I think, and have the courage more than most, I think, to see the shallow roots of toxic positivity. And so I do often wonder if that is at a great cost. And so it seems we are left, I think, with a tough choice, aren't we? Poisonous positivity or poisonous despair. Poisonous if you do, poisonous if you don't. Both are toxic, and it's at this exact impasse that God will give us a third way. And it's the way of God. His is the way of wisdom. But you remember, if you've been with us, you remember what wisdom is, biblically speaking. Wisdom is, to quote someone, skill in the art of godly living. God wants his people to be aligned with the grain of the universe that he created. And so to live in a relationally healthy way is to be wise. To live in a relationally aligned way with God, with his creation, with ourselves, with, with others. To be that is to be wise. And Koholeth comes along in this book of Ecclesiastes, says, calls us into a grouping like this and says, let me tell you what I found about the way this world works. Let me, in other words, give you the wise way. And let me tell you, it is not a choice between toxic positivity or toxic despair. His is the way of wisdom. And in fact, as we will see, his is ultimately the way of real joy. See, a wise person can say no to both poisons. And instead, choose an alternative. Real joy. It's not shallow joy. No, no, no. But it's real. And if you can believe it, this book is all about joy. I think that's probably hard to believe from a book that starts with vanity of vanity, says the preacher. That's Kahola, preacher. Some translations say preacher. Some translations say other things. Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Maybe your translation says everything is meaningless. So you're thinking, how on earth is this a book about joy? I'm telling you, this book is a treasure map to real joy. This may not be how many of you think of this book, but most of Israel's history did. Did you know that? Did you know that this book is often read in its entirety on the third day of the Feast of Tabernacles? Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10 sets the tone for this feast day. Do not be sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Koholeth is a feasting book, not a fasting book. And here's how we know. Koholeth orders us to feast. 
time and time and time and time again in this book. You know, there's really no good outline for this book. If you've been with us in the series, usually it's about this time where I show you the outline and give you the flow of thought with the book so that we can kind of see the the high-level view of it. There really isn't an amazing outline for the book of Ecclesiastes, but there is a backbone which gives it shape. And this backbone is essentially a backbone of joy. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to list it in order as we encounter these statements from Solomon. We have first in chapter 2, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. To the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after one. And then in chapter 3, we encounter this. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. A little bit later. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Behold, what have I seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with what? Joy in his heart. Chapter 8, I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Chapter 9, go, eat bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, celebration clothing. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. We're going to talk about that word. That he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. You know what? It's tempting, I think, to read all this. And to say, nah, he doesn't mean it. He's not serious. But if we were to say that, he rebukes us at the very, very end. The very end of chapter 12, the end of Ecclesiastes. It says this, besides being wise, the preacher, Kohola, also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. These are careful words that you just heard. The preacher sought to find words of delight. Yes, these are words of delight. These are words of joy. And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. These are trustworthy words that you just heard. The words of the wise are like goads. If you're a shepherd, a goad is something that kept the sheep moving on the safe path. So these are safe words that sort of stimulate and generate wise actions. 
And these words are like nails firmly fixed. They're memorable. They're like, like if you were a shepherd and you needed to set up your tent at night, just like if you're camping in the backcountry, you need tent pegs to keep the thing on the ground. Well, that's exactly what Ecclesiastes is to God's people. They are memorable. They stick in your brain so that you can live life remembering them. And they're given ultimately by what? One shepherd. And that S is, a, is capitalized on purpose. Because in this, Solomon is saying, ultimately, these are inspired words. These are God's words. And yes, they offer joy. They offer joy. We do not need to choose shallow optimism, toxic positivity. We do not need to choose toxic despair. There is a path to real joy. And Kahola tells us that this real joy requires three things. Courageous realism, covenant relationship, and comprehensive receptivity. You know this by now, I cannot not alliterate. (laughs) I'm so sorry. But real joy requires first courageous realism. Courageous realism. Solomon here is very realistic about what he sees in God's worlds, in God's world. And what he does is he essentially asks us to look at the world as he does with his eyes. And the wise person agrees to do that. But I will tell you, it is not easy because it requires courage. If we want the joy, the real joy that is being offered from the Lord that is described throughout this book, we have to share Solomon's courageous realism. We must name hard realities about this world we live in. We cannot be in denial anymore. If you want real joy, you actually have more in common with the toxic despair than you do the toxic positivity. You have more in common because you're willing to stand with them, sit with them, and see what they see. You don't go all the way there. But you say, yeah, you have a point. You have a point. It's courageous realism. And we have to be realistic about two things. The first thing is this, that God made the world, not us. There is a creation-creator distinction. We talked about that with Job last week. And this line between the creator of all and all of creation, including us, means that there is more mystery than we care to admit about this world that God made. And this is why Solomon can say this in chapter 5. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. We have to be realistic on this life, in this life to have joy. And fundamental to this outlook is a robust acknowledgement that we are not God, and He is. We see this expressed in chapter 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. Do you see the mystery? There's, first of all, this sort of heart that we all have that is shaped for God, that is designed to rest in the Lord. And yet, at the same time, Solomon tells us that we have no idea how it all works, this world. That is a recipe for mystery, amen? We are designed for God, and yet we can't understand how God does it. It's a recipe for humility as well. There is an inherent mystery to life. 
And this is not a bad thing. It's how God made the world. And the first step, I think, the real joy, friends, is acknowledging that we are not God. But we also have to be realistic about a second thing. Not just creation, but also fall. We have to be realistic about fall. You see, the world has been broken. In a way, all of the relationships that were healthy at the beginning have been fractured. So that our relationship with God, our relationship to the creation, our relationship to one another, and even our relationship to ourselves is fractured and distorted. And the root cause of so much destruction. This world has fallen. And so the creator-creation distinction is humbling enough But the very fact that we live east of Eden, or as Solomon would put it, under the sun, means that life is doubly difficult. And if we want to have real joy, we need to be courageously realistic about all the ways our relationships have been fractured and distorted by the fall, by sin. Which means it's time to talk about one of the most famous words in the book of Ecclesiastes. Hebel. Hebel. This word shows up 37 times in Ecclesiastes. Which is poetic by itself, by the way, because the Hebrew letters, those three letters right there, which all have numeric value. When you add them together, you get 37. Isn't that cool? I like that. That's kind of cool. Happens 37 times equals 37. That's neat. That's neat. Can we say that? Here's what's more important now. The word itself is a poetic image. When you hear it, you're supposed to imagine vapor. You're actually supposed to imagine the steam that 20 minutes ago would have been rising from this coffee. That's what the word conveys. It conveys wind or breath or steam or smoke or vapor. Everything like that is what you are supposed to kind of right brain imagine when you hear the word heaven, when you see it. Last week, the Bengals, well, I guess it wasn't last week, but when the Bengals played last, my son said, it looks like the players are dragons. Because they're wearing those kind of goof, sorry, they're wearing those helmets, uh, those Bengals helmets, and... Um, and out of their helmets, you see this like breath that's being vaporized, and it looked like smoke. Well, that vapor, that breath, that sort of smoke is what Kohala asks us to imagine when he uses this word 37 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, Hebel. Unfortunately, I think our Hebrew Bibles do a disservice here. Some translate Hebel to vanity. The word vanity. Whenever you see that word vanity, that's their translation. Others, and I think this is worse, translate Hebel as meaninglessness. And the problem is with this is it's well-intentioned, but what's happening is the translators are stealing from you Kaholath's main goal, which is to light up your imagination. And like all good poetic images, the meaning is a bit more flexible than a technical word can do. Hebel is an image, and so it varies by context in the book of Ecclesiastes. So that sometimes the vapor of Ecclesiastes means life is hard to understand. Sometimes the vapor of Ecclesiastes means life is hard to keep. It's hard to grasp. 
It's hard to control. Life sometimes is hard to satisfy. It's like eating wind would be the image. Life used to be then is like the steam rising from your coffee or your tea. It's like your breath on a cold day. We have to be realistic about this. That is the front door to real joy. Okay? That is the front door to real joy. It takes courage to say this and to acknowledge this. But it's the path to real joy. Years ago, my family, we had two rocking chairs in our house. One was made for adults. And, one, and the other was this beautiful sort of wicker rocking chair made for a toddler. But even a toddler was a little too big for it. The big rocker was in our living room, and I loved to sit in it. I loved to read in it. The small rocker was upstairs in our boys' rooms, one or the other. And when they could fit in it, they loved to sit in it as well. Oftentimes, I think it would hold a stuffed animal more often than that. But here's the thing. If I ever decided to sit in the small rocker, <laughs> this beautiful creation would get crushed. It would get crushed under my weight. Why? Because unlike the big rocker, this small rocker was not designed to hold my weight. Well, the same could be said for all that God made in this world. It is good. God said it is good. It is good. I can't say that enough. It is good, which means also you were made good in the image of God. Inherent dignity. This world is good, but it is not designed to hold our weight. We cannot ask of God's creation what it was never designed to deliver, which is ultimate comfort which is ultimate control, ultimate security, ultimate salvation. If we do, then we sit on steam and we crash to the ground. And so let me just ask you right away, what aspect of God's good creation are you tempted to put all of your weight on as if it could hold you? What aspect of God's good creation are you tempted to gather as if they are tent poles and create a whole artifice that you can live within and imagine safety and security. What aspect of God's good creation are you, in other words, asking to put all of your existential weight upon? Is it your job, your future job, your family, a perfect spouse, security? Is it a vision of the future or maybe a memory from the past? Well, Solomon says, if you put your weight on that... It is like doing a trust fall into a pile of steam. It's not going to work. Why? Because creation is bad? No. It just wasn't made for that. Real joy requires courageous realism. Which takes us to our second ingredient. Real joy requires covenant Relationship. See, real joy requires that we be realistic about the world God made. But the key is that we can have relationship with the God who made this. We can have relationship, a covenant relationship, like a marriage. We can have relationship with this God in the fog, in the vapor. 
I think the entire book urges us towards realism and relationship. First of all, throughout this book, Solomon assumes that we are in a story with an author. So we can think of it this way. Our relationship is with the author of it all. We can have a relationship. We can have intimacy. We can have a covenant, which means I will never let you go, relationship with the maker of it all, with the author of it all, the story that we are in. And that is key to real joy. And we're going to talk about why that is. I think this relationship doesn't remove any of the mystery. If anything, and can I get an amen? It enhances the mystery. Amen. amen? It does. But it is an affirmation that the world has an author who knows what he is doing. And we are within that story. So that we see this most clearly in chapter 5. Very famous. Chapter 5. There's a time for everything. Birth, death, planting, plucking up. It goes on. So that we find chapter 9, the great summary. What gain is the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing be taken from it. God has done it. Therefore, people fear before him. Now that word fear, we've encountered that in the wisdom literature, haven't we? What is the beginning of wisdom? Fear of the Lord. So I have two takeaways from this very famous passage. Number one, God is writing a story that involves the extremities of life and everything in between. The extremities of life. And everything in between. God is writing a story. He is the author of it all. It says right here that God has done it. Verse 15, verse 14. This is his authorship. And yet number two, this says we don't really know how it comes together. We don't know how it all fits. But we trust that despite that mystery, God is a good author. And another way to put that is verse 14, fear of the Lord. Again, we encounter this in Proverbs. It's the beginning of wisdom. We encounter it here again. We actually encounter it all throughout Ecclesiastes. We see it in chapter 5, verse 7. We see it in chapter 7, verse 18. We see it in chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Another way to put this, again, is fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is living with a profound sense of God's Godness. He is author of all. This is how I like to frame this. His Godness. And a profound experience of his goodness. He is a good author. One without another, and you don't have fear of the Lord. And this is how Solomon can suggest simple joy. In verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful. And do good as long as they live so that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. And this is how Solomon concludes the very end of the book. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Because God is the author of the story, this means he will make things right in the end, okay? Because God is the author of the story, which you are in as well as me, we know that God will make things right in the end. This verse, this very end of Ecclesiastes, speaks of judgment. 
And I want you to think of judgment as they would have thought of judgment, as a very, 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 very good thing. And here's why. Well, I like how Derek Kidner puts it. It kills complacency to know that nothing goes unnoticed and unassessed, not even the things we disguise from ourselves. But at the same time, it transforms life. If God cares as much as this, nothing can be pointless. Judgment means everything matters. Real joy requires a relationship to an author of a story, an author who cares about it all. And fear of the Lord is the only door to this real joy. But that's not all. We also have a relationship to the author of the story, but we also have a relationship to the hero of the story because the hero of the story is the author, the author made flesh, and that is Jesus. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. God will bring all things into judgment in the end, but for those of us who are trusting in Jesus, those of us who are trusting in Jesus, the author made flesh, we can actually look at the cross of Jesus and we can see that as God's judgment for sin brought into the present. All of our sins so that God can be both just and justifier, as Paul would put it. Solomon was wise. He offers real joy, but one greater than Solomon is here, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is real joy. Jesus is life abundant. Jesus is joy in the flesh, and he puts us in relationship to the author, and he reminds us that this author who cares about everything so that he brings it into judgment and makes it all right is also the justifier. The judge is judged in Jesus on the cross. And that means that we have a, a fear of the Lord. We understand His Godness. Look at the cross. That is His holiness. That is what our sin requires. And yet, on the other hand, look at His goodness. He brings judgment upon Himself so that we can have forgiveness. So that, yes, we can have real life. So that we can have life abundant. So that we can have eternal life. Eternal life that begins today and lasts for all of eternity. That is because of the one greater than Solomon, who is Jesus. He is the one... Who is the joy? Koholeth is, as others have, would put it, like John the Baptist's finger points us to Jesus. He says to all of us, we are made for God. We are made to be in relationship to Him. And Jesus gives us a life. So fear of the Lord is what our hearts are made for. Fear of the Lord is worship. I'll tell you this. I always knew God existed as a kid. I sort of always recognized that he was holy, that he was God, that I was not. But I never understood his goodness. I got his godness. I never understood his goodness until I saw the cross. Until someone told me what happened at the cross. And when that happened, I'll tell you what happened. I felt a profound sense of heaviness about my rebellion. And at the very, very same time, almost simultaneously, I felt an unbelievable, unbelievable lightness because of the forgiveness that God gave me. And then you know what happened? I think I wept. And you know what that was? That was worship. And you know what that was? Fear the Lord. Because God is God and yet he is good. And I saw it at the foot of the cross. Do you see it? Look, the path to real joy requires courageous realism, but it also requires covenant relationship, and Jesus gives you to this. 
gives you this. This summer, I noticed my temp gauge on my, on my car, on my dash, was skyrocketing while on the highway. Has this happened to you? Well, it happened to me, and it was strange because I had just got my oil changed. And so I took it into my mechanic, because it was going to break my car, uh, to have a look. And they did look, and it turns out whoever changed my oil, remember that oil change I just had? Whoever changed my oil apparently topped off my coolant with windshield wiper fluid. Yeah. It turns out engines aren't built to run with windshield wiper fluid. Well, the human heart and the human body was designed to run on the true heart. Let's put it that way. Not his stuff. Good as it is. His stuff is good and to be enjoyed as gifts, but they cannot run the engine. You'll burn out if you try. In other words, if you seek ultimate, lasting joy in the stuff of God's creation, you will never taste it. But if you seek relationship with God, you can have real joy. Esau Macaulay describes sin, and I love this, he describes sin as a joy lie. We seek joy in the wrong places and in the wrong way. Instead of seeking joy in the Lord. The real way, the real joy, is realism and relationship with the maker. And this is our final point. It's a quick one. Real joy requires comprehensive receptivity. To be receptive is to have a posture of receiving. I think there are two ways to live life. With open hands or clenched fists. Clenched hands control. Clenched hands assume that all of life is about manipulation and hoarding and keeping. But when you clutch, Koholath will tell you, it's faker. Open hands receive. Open hands receive. They keep their hands open, and then guess what? Solid gifts are placed on the palms. Open hands know that all of life is gift. Everything is gift. Everything is gift. Even your breath. Everything is gift. And that ultimately is the wisdom of Kahola. It's all gift. If you look again at his conclusions, remember the backbone of his letter, you will notice the pattern. First, you have radical, sort of courageous realism, and then on the other side is receptivity, and the vapor turns solid. It turns solid. For apart from Him, who can eat or have enjoyment? This is God's gift to man to be joyful. For that is His lot. What is a lot? A lot is something you receive. There's nothing better than a man should rejoice, rejoice in His work. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions, and listen, power to enjoy them. We don't even have the power or the capacity to enjoy gifts unless it is a gift itself from God. We can't enjoy gifts unless we receive the gift of enjoying the gift. And that means all is gift. That is what Solomon says. It's all gift. It's all grace. God has given him, verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 15 of chapter 8. 
God has already approved what you do. Therefore, let your garments be white, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Simple gratitude for simple joys is a profound act of worship. I had a friend who liked to say, whatever good thing is in front of you is proof that God loves you. Neuroscientists and psychology departments are all catching up to the Bible on this. Gratitude is like oxygen for mental health. We thrive with it. But as my former counseling professor, Richard Winter, likes to ask, thank who very much? Thank who very much? See, gratitude makes no sense in a godless world, a world that is the result of random biological mechanisms, but in a world over which God is an author and over which he himself is a good author. And we know that because the author made flesh. In that world, we can say thank you very much to him who gives it off. And that is the road, friends, to real joy. I've noticed in my own life that if I do not go on a walk in which I do three things, my life tends to go south. And here's what I do. First of all, I have to notice the presence of God. I have to simply acknowledge that God is here and that he made all things, including myself, and that he is present by the Spirit with me. And so I make room for Jesus actually sometimes as I walk on the sidewalk. Number two, I rehearse with him all the ways that I've attempted to walk away from his good presence in my life. And number three, I say thank you for everything. And I mean everything. It helps to be so brutally specific about even the small things. Again, clenched fists or open fists. I didn't realize it until now that this is the way of wisdom. That this is the way of kaholeth. That this is the way of real joy. So what does this mean for you? Realism. Relationship, receptivity. Three closing thoughts. Number one, don't sugarcoat the confusion. Let Solomon give you permission to name the vapor. Allow your morning coffee, maybe, or tea to remind you of life under the sun. Don't sugarcoat the confusion. Number two, and I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis on this one, don't lust for encore. This was C.S. Lewis's way of describing what happens when we experience a pleasure or a gift. We try to manufacture it again and again and again. We try to level it up and then we try to level it up and then we try to level it up. And what happens is we start to worship the pleasure, not the gift giver. Don't lust for encore. Thank you. And then lastly, I have to reference Lewis again. He is so good on these themes. Don't aim for earth. I think Lewis summarized Ecclesiastes in 17 words. I'll quote him. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Here is real joy in this vaporous world. But it must come from the Lord's hands. Lord, we come to you now with open hands. And we ask that you would indeed give us real joy. We stop grasping and we start opening to you, to your goodness. Thank you, author made flesh, Jesus, for bringing us into relationship with the great giver.
Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.